Hey, everybody, this is Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble has been free for all listeners for the last few weeks, but not this week. Sorry. Uh, we do have a partial episode for free subscribers. We talk about events in New York and in Washington, D.C., Michael Cohen's testimony in that Trump civil trial and what it could mean for the upcoming criminal trial in Manhattan. We talk about the gag order that's back in effect down in Washington, D.C., but if you want to hear our full episode, if you want to hear about what's going on in Colorado, uh, where there's a lawsuit that could remove Donald Trump from the presidential ballot there and could set a precedent that could interfere with his candidacy all across the country, this is about this constitutional question. Did Donald Trump participate in a rebellion or insurrection in a way that causes him to be disqualified from serving as president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? This started as an academic question, uh, but it's a serious question about whether he's even going to be able to be a presidential candidate in the election next year. Uh, we talk about proceedings related to that in Colorado and the set of court proceedings that may set up. It's unlikely that the last word on this will happen in a trial court in the state of Colorado, but that's where we are right now. We talk about that. We also talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, who took the stand in his own defense and did uh, probably not so great, but uh, maybe they had no good choice but to put him on the stand, given the way things have been going in that case. Uh, we also talk about some interesting courtroom sketches, and we talk about George Santos, who has a trial date all the way in late September. He may yet get a full term in Congress. Uh, if you want to hear that whole episode, go to SeriousTrouble.show, and for $6 a month or $60 a year, uh, you can upgrade and become a full paying subscriber. You'll hear that full episode. You'll also hear every full episode. We put out 50 episodes in our first year. We're on pace to do about the same in our second year. And uh, you'll also be supporting this show, making it possible for Ken and Sarah and me to get together every week and make this show for you. So I encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show, listen to the whole thing. You're really going to want to hear the whole thing. Thanks. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, I want to start this week talking about Michael Cohen. Uh, yes. This feels like a real throwback. When we started doing all the president's lawyers, we talked kind of a lot about Michael Cohen. He's not as big a figure these days as he once was, which I'm sure is very hurtful to him. But he's really had his, his time in the spotlight again in the last week. Yeah, you know, the, the bloom is a bit off the rose on his rehabilitation tour, and with the, which, <laughs> as dramatic convention requires, include the podcast. But this week, he testified in court in New York in the New York Attorney General's ongoing trial against the Trump organizations. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny, actually, the, when you talk about the rehabilitation tour, he's been talking about maybe running for Congress. He, he says he's people have been asking him to run for Congress in New York's 12th district, which is where I live. It covers the, the middle of Manhattan, basically. So apparently some people consider him to be rehabilitated and someone who ought to serve in Congress, along with George Santos, who we'll talk about later today. It's a little on the nose, isn't it, Josh? I mean, <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's talk about this testimony, because the, the thing we were talking about with this previously is did Letitia James, the New York attorney general, really need to call Michael Cohen in this case? This is the case about Trump business fraud, the idea that various Trump businesses made misrepresentations about the values of assets they held in order to get better terms on bank loans and things like that. Uh, this is a civil trial. Um, and Michael Cohen is one of many people who has worked with Donald Trump over the period when they alleged that he was committing these frauds. And they brought Michael Cohen to testify about the way that Trump did business and the way that he came to these valuations. And the problem with having Michael Cohen testify is that he's a convicted felon. He's been convicted of crimes related specifically to dishonesty, including perjury. And so he's less than an ideal witness. Was he useful in advancing the case that's been brought against Trump and his businesses here? 
by the reports, I'm not sure that he was, but um, I'm not sure that he needed to be. We have to bear in mind that this is a bench trial. The judge has already expressed very strong opinions about the case and the quality of the evidence. This seemed to be a little bit of bouncing the rubble by the AG. And ultimately, it doesn't really seem as if Cohen performed particularly well. Uh, he did not connect Trump personally to anything earth-shaking. He was effectively cross-examined, uh, admitted he had lied multiple times, including during his sentencing on his federal charges, and in a dramatic moment admitted that he had never been told specifically by Donald Trump to ever fabricate or exaggerate any numbers, which created a dramatic moment where uh, Trump stormed out of the courtroom, trailed by some Secret Service agents who were a little overtaken by events. <laughs> Uh, at that point, uh, Trump's lawyers said, well, you know, judge, you should dismiss the case, which is a pure theatrical move because, no, he shouldn't. And the judge said, you know, the, the courtroom is full of evidence. There's plenty of evidence other than this. And I think that encapsulates that it was uh, kind of more of a publicity move to call Michael Cohen than it really was a substantive one. I don't know how much he added, and I don't think you'd do it in front of a jury because, as you said— He's a experienced liar and kind of unlikable. Yeah. An interesting aspect of that, though, is that there's going to be a jury trial in a few months that the Manhattan District Attorney has brought against Donald Trump related to the hush payment that was made to Stormy Daniels. And Michael Cohen played a central role in facilitating that hush payment. So even though maybe you didn't need him to testify in this trial, he's going to be a key witness in that trial. The New York Times reported about how both the Manhattan District Attorney uh, had a prosecutor in the room who's going to be leading that case and Trump's criminal defense lawyers who don't need to attend day to day at this civil trial were also there to watch Michael Cohen and basically trying to figure out how he might perform in that case where he really will be an important witness. Yeah. And based on that, it's somewhat of a weird choice to call him in the AG's case. Uh, you know, as a prosecutor, you don't want your witness exposed to a bunch of questioning and cross-examination because that has a way of generating prior statements that the witness can then contradict. It sort of exposes their weaknesses. It shows what cross-examination works on them. So if I were the New York criminal prosecutor, I wouldn't be happy about the AG taking Michael Cohen out for a ride uh, because it somewhat harms his value as a uh, a witness in the criminal case. I guess the other side is you see how good he is, and the answer is not particularly good. Uh, he was kind of an <laughs> asshole on the stand. He objected like a lawyer to some of the questions, which you do not well, he do. he is a lawyer. Yes, but not when he's on the stand, Josh. <laughs> and uh, he that's something judges really don't like, juries really don't like, and it's, it's extremely obnoxious. So he was Michael Cohen. Uh, he was noticeably Michael Cohen still after all these years. Uh, and I, I don't think that the New York prosecutors came away oh, from that blown away by how good a witness he is. Is this a general problem with putting lawyers on the stand that they or trial lawyers anyway, that they feel like they, they know how to run this sort of thing and, and they try to drive from the, the witness seat? Or is it or is it really just a problem with specifically Michael Cohen type lawyers, which is to say really bad lawyers? I think it's a problem with all lawyers, uh, and I say that having <laughs> recently uh, had the opportunity to testify, the impulse to be a lawyer is is extremely strong. Uh, you're in a courtroom. This is where you act like a lawyer, and it's kind of hard 
to remember that actually you're not supposed to be acting like a lawyer right now. But it's particularly a problem with some personality types. And Michael Cohen has always been one of those. And life and federal prosecution has not quite beaten it out of him yet. Aside from Michael Cohen's performance, the other big news that came out of this trial was something in the aftermath of Michael Cohen's testimony. You you noted that Donald Trump stormed out. His lawyers tried to get the case dismissed at that point. And then afterward, Trump spoke with reporters outside the courtroom, and he said, this judge is a very partisan judge with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside him, perhaps even more partisan than he is. Now, of course, there's a gag order in this case, and it's a fairly narrow gag order. It's the judge, Arthur Engeron, said, do not attack my staff. Uh, And Trump has had a particular obsession with the judge's principal law clerk, who sits right next to him, assisting him as, as he supervises the case. And then the question was, was Donald Trump talking again about the principal law clerk when he made this statement about a very partisan person who's sitting alongside the judge? And so he came back in the courtroom and Donald Trump claimed, no, I wasn't talking about her. I was talking about Michael Cohen. And then the judge had to determine what exactly Donald Trump meant by this statement and whether it was a violation of the gag order. Yeah. So the judge put Donald Trump on the stand, which is not a good moment uh, for Trump's (laughs) lawyers, by the way, uh, and briefly questioned him and then later proclaimed that he found Trump's testimony hollow and untrue. (laughs) Um, saying basically it was clear he was violating the order by referring once again to the law clerk, which for some bizarre reason, uh, the law clerk in this courtroom sits kind of next to the judge. I'm I'm assuming this is some sort of New York thing, like calling the trial court the Supreme Court and all this other weird Mm -hmm. shit you guys do. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, the judge doubled the fine to $10,000 in sanctions and kind of uh, read Trump the right act, which which demonstrates a sort of doubling of uh, penalties and is probably a way to step up towards something more significant uh, if Trump keeps doing this, which Trump almost certainly will. But what does more significant mean? I mean, th- these amounts of money, while they are, you know, substantial in an abstract sense, probably don't matter that much to Donald Trump personally. Can he also can he pay these sanctions out of campaign funds in the way that he's been paying his legal bills out of campaign funds? I don't think he can legitimately pay them out of campaign funds. That could be a new criminal violation. Uh, But, you know, he may be, for all we know. Why is it legal to use campaign money to pay your legal bills, but not to pay a sanction from the court? Well, I'm not sure that it is legal to use campaign funds to pay your legal bills. I don't think that's been determined. And I think that may be a fact-intensive question about the basis for the litigation that's going on. So I I wouldn't assume that. Uh, But I think paying sanctions is going to be even harder to connect to legitimate campaign purpose. But uh, Hmm. Josh, everyone's super impatient. Judges step up levels of sanctions. They don't go from zero to 60 instantly. And so, of course, $5,000 and $10,000 are not a huge deal to someone with gold toilets. Uh, But uh, the judge (laughs) is stepping it up. And I think it's a signal that sooner or later, the judge is going to consider remanding him into custody, uh, which is what a judge will do if you break the judge's orders enough times. But it's probably not twice. It's probably more like four times. I mean, that would be a huge circus if they did that. I assume that he's hoping to avoid that outcome. I would think the judge doesn't want that outcome and is trying to signal to Trump's attorneys that they need to get him under control. But the bottom line is, you know, everyone wants Trump in jail today. And everyone thinks it's terrible (laughs) if he's not. And that's just not the way things work. And if he were put into custody, would that be for the duration of the trial? 
Uh, well, it would be depending on where and when the violation happened. It could be a direct contempt, something happened in front of the judge or not. Uh, it could require a separate brief proceeding and it could just be like as a punishment. So no, it wouldn't be the duration of the trial because it's not trying to compel him to do something. Well, we will we will keep watching that. Let's talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C., the other gag order, the the more substantial gag order on Donald Trump that came down from Judge Tanya Chutkin, barring him from making attacks on the individuals who are prosecutors on that federal case. That's the case about events leading up to January 6th, also barring him from attacking the court staff and people who are potential witnesses in the case. She issued this order. We talked about how the order, the written order, was a little more vague than we expected it to be. Trump's team filed a notice of appeal related to the order, and they asked for a stay, which she granted briefly while considering whether to issue a longer stay. Now she's put out an order saying, no, you do not get a longer stay pending appeal. And she has some analysis basically saying that they are unlikely to prevail on appeal uh, in getting her gag order overturned, uh, and that for that and other reasons, it will remain in effect while they appeal it. That's right. Uh, so she issued this order after giving the parties an opportunity to fully brief whether or not there should be a stay. The ACLU uh, filed an amicus brief uh, arguing that the court should stay and that the the order was fatally flawed in terms of vagueness and, and other things. It's a fairly strong brief by the ACLU. Josh, I think the general legal consensus is that the order was not great, uh, that it was whether or not you could have a First Amendment permissible gag order, this wasn't it. Uh, so Judge Chutkin somewhat improved her reasoning and her specificity in this order. She went deeper into the case law supporting gag orders in this particular type of context. And uh, in response to the main point, I think the strongest point, which is that it's fatally vague to say that you can't target people because what is targeting? She more or less said, well, you know what targeting is because of the context and the oral argument and what everyone said back and forth. So she quoted a bunch of that and then she used examples. You know, she said, uh, here's an example where Trump is just griping about uh, the prosecution in general and how it's being driven by Biden. That's permissible. Here's one where he's attacking Mark Meadows, uh, who's, you know, allegedly cooperating in his potential testimony. Even Trump concedes that that's maybe impermissible. So uh, now, you know, uh, she may have, in effect, fixed some of the vagueness issues, um, although not the way you would want them to be fixed. Uh, you still want an order that has a clear definition rather than saying, oh, well, you can infer the definition from the argument. Uh, but it's it's a better order than the prior one. Mm -hmm. And effectively, it somewhat narrows the order. Yeah, it, it effectively explains that targeting means attacking people uh, and in the context of witnesses, attacking them based on their anticipated testimony. So uh, Trump, of course, immediately went hog wild on Truth Social, uh, which still exists. Yes. And attacked the judge, which is permissible because she doesn't forbid attacks on her. Attacked the prosecution. I don't mean the prosecutors, but, you know, the the decision to prosecute him and attribute it to Biden, which is nonsense. Um, and then in- But it's permissible. It, but it's permissible. And then attacked Bill Barr, uh, mostly for the sin of suggesting that Trump isn't particularly articulate. 
And that one, since it could be interpreted as attacking his potential testimony, is close to the line, might be a violation of the uh, gag order. But is this about his potential testimony? He, he called Bill Barr dumb, weak, slow-moving, lethargic, gutless, and lazy, a rhino who couldn't do the job. And he says, so now this moron says about me to get even, his verbal skills are limited. Well, that's one I haven't heard before. Tell that to the biggest political crowds in the history of politics by far. Bill Barr is a loser. Uh, that is harsh. None of that really sounds to me like it's about Bill Barr's potential testimony about the events that led up to January 6th. Not explicitly. Uh, the question is whether or not it's intended because he's a known witness in the case and we know what, you know, some of his testimony is going to be, uh, whether by implication it's about him testifying. I agree that it's not explicitly so, but I think uh, it's testing the limits already within hours of the judge reinstating the gag order. And then let's talk about what's going on in Colorado. This is a case we haven't talked about yet. And it's an issue that we haven't talked about at any length, which is this question of whether the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, bars Donald Trump from serving as president and whether it bars him from being on ballots as a candidate for president, which, by the way, I would note are oddly somewhat separate questions. The question is, does this section of the 14th Amendment, which says that if you participated in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States government, that you may not hold certain offices, including the presidency, does that bar Donald Trump from Colorado ballots? There are a few states where there are proceedings about this issue. And this is the this one has gone to trial before a state judge in Colorado, where you have a number of voters who are assembled by the liberal pressure group crew, uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They are suing the Colorado Secretary of State, and they're also suing Donald Trump, trying to get him off of Colorado's ballots. And the court has to figure out this fact question of, did Donald Trump engage in an insurrection or rebellion against the U.S.? Right. Josh, we've been talking on and off about covering this for months that was this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. If you want to hear about that case in Colorado, which could lead to Donald Trump being removed from the presidential ballot in Colorado uh, and set a precedent that could be relevant for other states, you can go to SeriousTrouble.show, upgrade for $6 a month or $60 a year. You'll hear that. You'll also hear our conversation about Sam Bankman-Fried's testimony in his own defense, the sort of odd situation where the judge had him testify without the jury to figure out what he was going to say to the jury. Um, we also talk about George Santos, who uh, has a trial date. It's not until next summer. Uh, late next summer. Uh, if you want to hear that, go to SeriousTrouble.show, upgrade for $6 a month or $60 a year. You'll get that full episode. You'll get every full episode. And you will be supporting this podcast, making it possible for us to put it out every week for you. Thank you.